You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, hey everybody. Good morning. How you doing? You guys good? Praise the Lord. All right. Well, always a pleasure to worship with you and fellowship and get into God's word together. If you don't know me, my name is Riz and uh, the church planting pastor here at Reality and just humbled and honored and excited for what God is doing in our midst and how he's moving. And uh, we've been going through the book of Mark kind of systematically, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, since October when we started, October 1st. And uh, we're already to Mark chapter 13 today. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you uh, turn to Mark chapter 13. And today we're doing something that's never been done before in the history of Reality Honolulu. And that is go through an entire chapter of the Bible on a Sunday. So this is like a big deal, a lot of verses, it all makes sense, it's all together, but man, here we go, and uh, we're going to read it in, all, in one sitting. Uh, this will probably never happen again, we usually go a lot slower than this, but today we are reading the entirety of Mark chapter 13, and one precursor is that this text today can seem pretty strange, or hard to understand, or abrupt, or harsh, or even could be something that you feel like you're reading out of a Lord of the Rings novel, and um, which all of it is except the Lord of the Rings thing. But it's, it's the, the imagery, the, the visualness, the harshness. I mean, just it's about the end times. It's about Jesus returning and coming back and all that leads up to that. And so as a precursor, as we're reading this, um, if it seems strange and hard to understand and abrupt, it, it is. Um, but the hope and the prayer is to unpack it and look at it and figure out what it is that we should get from it. And so uh, Mark 13, starting in verse 1, going through the entirety of the chapter, then we'll pray. Um, it takes about three and a half minutes or so to read this, so just we can do this together, right? We can do it. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe our ADD Instagram mentality can't, but let's try. Let's endeavor to, to do it together. Chapter 13, verse 1, Mark. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at these impressive stones in the walls. Jesus replied, Yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, tell us, when will all of this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines, but this is the, only the first of the birth pains, which more to come. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. 
For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at the time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own children. The children will rebel against his uh, parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The day is coming when you'll see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in these days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter. For there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive, but for the sake of those chosen ones, uh, he has shortened those days. Then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders also to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out. I have warned you about this ahead of time. At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall into the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near in the same way. When you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the son himself, only the father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will will return in the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you that what I say to everyone, watch for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is infallible, it's without error, it has authority, it's your word, it's God-breathed and God-inspired. And God, we ask that you would help us to have understanding into your very word this morning, what it means for us, what it means for the world, and in light of that, how we ought to live because of it. And so, God, would you lead us? Would you guide our time? Would you give us understanding? Holy Spirit, would you anoint me to communicate these truths? 
And Lord, would, would, would you write your word on the tablet of our hearts? We want to be a people that, that know your word and know what it says, know to tell what is true and what is of error, that you would make us a people that live in light of your word and of your truths, and we stand upon them. The, the basis, the foundation of our life is built upon your word, which does not disappear. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of God stands forever. And so, God, we want to build our lives upon that. Help us to do so today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So really strange, right, what's happening in our text. A lot going on. And what's funny is 20 years ago this summer, so 20 years ago exactly, 1998, the summer of it, I was exiting elementary school, going into middle school, did not grow up in a Christian home, knew nothing about Jesus. But my best friend was a believer, family heavily involved in their church, and had been his friend for all of uh, elementary school. And one day, we were walking on this bluff-type area right next to the ocean in uh, just north of Santa Barbara, California. And I remember it vividly to this day. Buddy of mine, best friend, says, hey, you should really get to know Jesus. This is in his sixth grade evangelism way. You, you should really know Jesus. You should really, like, he should be your Lord because he's coming back again. He's coming back again. And, and I had no idea what you're talking about. I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know anything. So I said to him, when did he first come? When did he even come the first time? When did he leave? What are you talking about? This guy, Jesus, is coming back. But what that was, that statement that Jesus was returning was the catalyst for him to invite me to something where I actually would end up getting saved. So this idea of the return of Christ, um, even though it was so foreign to me at the time, is really near to me at the same time. So 20 years ago this summer is the Lord used this truth of his return um, to, to bring me to salvation. Pretty cool. But anytime Jesus in the Bible speaks about the end times, whether it's his second coming or the rapture or the tribulation or the millennial kingdom, it can be really confusing. It can be hard to understand and what's happening even like our text today. There's so much going on and you're trying to even figure out who this is talking about, when is it happening, and how does that apply to me? And I mean, you're right, our society has done a, a good job or a funny job or an interesting, cheesy job of trying to help us. The Left Behind series was like, this, this is what they were trying to do. You guys familiar with the Left Behind series? Like 2000, right around there, end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, right? Kurt Cameron making movies, just like, this whole series is trying to depict the end times, the rapture, the tribulation, Jesus' return. A lot has tried to kind of unpack these deep, maybe confusing, hard to understand concepts. And I'm not going to lie. Open up, you know, the word this last few weeks, looking at what's ahead, praying towards, reading the text, looking at uh, Mark chapter 13. And when I'm reading this this week... Man, my response for a while was, what is even happening? Let alone, like, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for us? How to teach this to you guys? But what is happening? So if you feel like these concepts are hard to understand and confusing and kind of like 
weird at sometimes. It's, it's true because they are. They're, they're complex and sometimes hard to understand. And it really took a while to kind of unpack and understand or try to understand what Jesus was saying. So we'll try to do that today. But what we need to know on a broad level is that Mark chapter 13 is considered or called the Olivet Discourse. And it's also mentioned in Luke 21 and Matthew 24. And so the same thing, the same apocalyptic end times discourse that Jesus gives is also recorded in Luke and in Matthew's Gospels. And what, in a sense, it is, is it's Jesus' warning his followers, what must happen and the suffering that must take place and the persecution that must happen before the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. And the reason why it's called the Olivet Discourse is because Jesus is teaching it on what's called the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is just a little hill across a little valley called the Kidron Valley, and it overlooks the city of Jerusalem. I think I have a picture. Do I? 50-50? Okay. So if you go on a trip to Israel, um, this is one of the first places that they'll take you if you go to Jerusalem. This is like the lookout. This is where all like the group pictures are taken on tours right here. These people, us right now in this room, we are on the Mount of Olives. This valley, I don't know if you can tell that there's depth to this down by those like cypress trees. This is a big Jewish cemetery. Then it hits some you know, trees, little, little river. Um, and then there's this steep kind of incline to the old city walls of Jerusalem. And so now that dome colored, that's the dome of the rock, but that's where the temple was. This is the temple mount, they call it. So that big corner spot on that raised city wall, where that's where the temple would have been. And so this Olivet Discourse is Jesus up here, just, well, Jesus and the disciples were not looking like that, okay? That's, but that's where they were. They didn't have that pink shirt or that blue umbrella with them. But Jesus and the four disciples, they're up here, and this is where Mark chapter 13 is happening. So I, I want you to like think of that as we go, especially the first couple of verses of our text is talking about the big, ornate, wonderful, amazing center of Judea Judaism, the temple sat where now the Dome of the Rock is. You guys got it? You there? With Jesus on the Mount of Olives? Okay. So as we endeavor to unpack these 37 verses and their original meaning and their interpretation, uh, I think it's best that we kind of take it up to about 30,000 feet, if you know that analogy, like a bird's eye view of what's happening. And what I mean by that is really try to understand some broad themes um, before we get into the details that are nuanced. And so what's happening here as Jesus is speaking, as he's, as he's, as he's speaking to his disciples, as he's speaking to his followers in his word to us this morning, Jesus is talking about the period of time between his ascension, right, so he, he was about to die, he would rise again, 40 days later, he would ascend to heaven to be with the Father. What Jesus is talking about is the period of time between his ascension till he comes back a second time. And what he's doing is he's describing what as believers we will encounter. And he also gives some signs 
to the end of the times. This is what the world will look like. This is what needs to happen first before I come again. And our working breakdown, four points that we're going to go through today to kind of look at our text, may be oversimplifying the text. But because the text is so complicated and it really jumps around, I think it's going to be helpful that we kind of sit and work through these four points. These are the four points we're going to look at that I believe are the main parts of the text today. Number one, hard times are here and they're coming. That is a big main truth of our text today. Hard times are here and they're coming. Secondly, Jesus is always the way, always the truth, and always the life through all of eternity. That's number two, big point that we need to get today, that Jesus is always the way, the truth, and the life. Also, though, in the midst of all that happens, God is with us always. That's huge. That's a big point we need to camp out on and and take away from today. And number four is Jesus is coming again to make all things right. That's the 30,000 oversimplification view of the text. But what I hope to do is I hope that those will be like pillars and guideposts, even as you maybe re-listen to this or go back yourself and work through Mark 13, or if you stumble across Matthew 24 or Luke 21, you can say, okay, what is Jesus saying? What does this mean? Because one or two verses can just run you down a rabbit hole real quick in, in any study of this text. But when thinking and processing anything of end times, it's really easy to err in, in one of two ways. One way is it's kind of so complicated and there's so many different opinions of when and how and what that you just are like, I'm over it. I I don't know. Jesus is going to come back when he's going to come back. And so just what does that even have to do with my life, right? How is that even going to change it? But also, sometimes we care too much about the when. And I mean, there is great debate in the church of like, when is Jesus coming back and when is the rapture and post-trib and pre-trib and books and blogs and fights and divisions because of it, right? We can either go one way or the other, and we really truly need a balance. The reason why we need a balance is that actually a majority of the New Testament speaks of the return of Christ. Actually, one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament talks about Jesus coming back. So it's actually pretty important that we do care about it, And also, even in our text this morning, there's 18 imperatives. Imperatives are things that you should do in light of a truth, right? In light of an an indicative, a truth stated, an imperative is an action from that truth. There's 18 different things Jesus tells us to do in light of the end times, right? Keep on guard, be watchful, be alert, over and over and over. He isn't just giving the disciples information, he's saying, you need to do something with this information. In light of me coming back, your life here and now needs to be different. That's what he's trying to get at. So here's what's happening. You guys with me? I know long precursor, long intro. I I know. These four points, though, aren't as long as you think. You guys with me? Okay. It's probably just me thinking you're not. No problem. All right, so Jesus, right, on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, looking across the Kidron Valley, and he sees the temple in all its glory. 
right? And the temple was the center of everything. It's where, where the, the, the presence of God was. It's where you brought your sacrifices to. It's where your sins were forgiven. It's where you traveled to. I mean, the temple signified the place where God was. Right, the Ark of the Covenant was in there, which represented the person and the power and the presence of God. And it's amazing, and it's ornate. And Jesus said, every single stone that it's made of, no stone will be left. It will all be destroyed. And if you do get a chance to go to Israel, there's actually like this little tunnel it's called the Rabbi's Tunnel that you can go with. You enter right by the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, and you can go and you can see the foundation of like the temple and the temple walls. And these stones are no joke. They're not like even boulders. I mean, this is like the Stonehenge, like pyramid type stone. So I have a picture of one of these stones. Okay, it's hard to see, honestly hard to see. Okay, hold on. Gotta go up. This is a person. He's standing at the edge of a stone, and this is a pan panorama. I, I do like to take panoramas. Uh, all the way to that person and about 10 feet high, and they think 10 feet deep and about 50 feet across. Stone. Thousands of years ago. This is like when, when Jesus is saying all the stones, there would be no stone left in the temple. You have to understand why the disciples would even start this conversation. Jesus, what do you mean the temple is going to be destroyed? And when is this going to happen? Because it's a pretty big deal for you to say these things. And 40 years after Jesus said this, Rome did just this. Literal fulfillment of prophecy happened. The temple was destroyed. And it happened just like he said it would. And what that should do for us is it should give some validity to the rest of his prophecy or, or we should hope in the literal fulfillment of the rest of what he says because he always has been spot on. God's word has. He's never, a prophecy has never not been fulfilled that God or Jesus said it would happen. And so the temple falling was a big deal because of what the temple signified, right? And so... What was happening was Jesus was trying to once again tell them that it wasn't about the temple, but it was the God who resided in the temple. And if we know anything from what we've read so far in the Gospels is that Jesus has said and has alluded to that he is the greater temple, that he is the temple uh, of God. He, he is the thing in which the temple signified coming to pass. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the sacrifice that would satisfy. No longer did they need the bloods of bulls and goats. His blood paid for all of humanity's sin. Jesus came to be and do what the temple symbolized. And so he's beginning by saying, it's not about that, it's about me. And so the disciples ask these questions. First they ask when, and the second question is, what signs will occur when this is about to happen? Jesus spends the rest of the chapter in Mark 13 answering what signs will precede it. He doesn't necessarily actually ask, answer the when. We're going to get to that in the last point. He says, no one knows the time or the hour, only the Father does. But the signs that will occur before the return of Christ, um, he talks a lot about that. And so again, we're going to briskly walk through these four takeaways. A big theme of our text 
that we cannot miss is that Jesus says, hard times are here and they're coming. And there's two time periods that Jesus refers to. In our text today, he refers to these days and those days. There's a difference in, in wordage. Verse 14 is kind of a bridge. 1 through 13 talks about these days presently. Those days, verse 14 onward, talks about future days. And so when Jesus is talking about the hard times here and the hard times coming, he's speaking to the disciples of the time they were in and the time we are in. And also there's future days that have not happened yet. Make sense? Okay. <laughs> there's a description that he gives of the state of the world in verses 7 through 8. And I don't know if you picked that up when we read it, but it talks all about wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and so on. That they'll be very frequent and they'll be increasing. If you are hip to anything that's happening in our world around us, that's most of what you see on the news, right? That's a lot of what's happened in the last century or the last couple decades. Natural disaster after natural disaster, war after war. I mean, that is current history. Current world history is that what Jesus said on the Mount of Olives 2,000 years ago is absolutely happening. I mean, because think about that. This is not a, like a manuscript from like 1940. This is from 2,000 years ago in Israel. This man and his disciples, King Jesus with his disciples, said what is happening now would happen. And for Christians, he goes on to say, not only will there be natural things going on with nations and there's wars, but also it will become very personal for Christians, that Christians will also be persecuted for our faith. That's not something new, something that's very frequent and often in the New Testament. We've talked about this before. But what he goes into detail is, is that many will be arrested and many will be persecuted for their faith. And for us here and now in America, we're not experiencing this. I mean, right, there is some sense of persecution, but nowhere near what is happening with Christians around the world today. I mean, so many Christians are actually being martyred for their faith and imprisoned and persecuted. And it is not, uh, Christianity is absolutely not an open religion for a lot of the world. Again, this is happening. This will continue to increase. And what Jesus would say here over and over and over, and he says, be, be watchful, be mindful, don't be unaware, and don't be caught off guard. What's helpful for us to take away on that point this morning is that we unfortunately shouldn't be surprised when really bad things are happening in the world around us. God said they were. We live in a fallen world. One day, we'll get to that. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to fix everything. But we're not there yet. We're caught in this here and now tension where God's kingdom's come and it's coming, but it's not quite fully there yet. And so as Christians, not that we should be uncompassionate or desensitized to what happens in the world, but when we as believers encounter persecution or when the world is suffering some incredibly natural disasters or when there's wars or whatnot, we should know God told us this would happen. 
Like, this isn't, this isn't something that we should be surprised at. We're like, where's God? What's happening? What, why, would, why would this happen? No, no, God knew this was happening. This knew that the fallen world would have to go through this before he came back. Secondly, in the midst of all that, we need to remember that Jesus is always the way, he's always the truth, and he's always the life. A huge part of this text today is about the idea that many will come, Jesus says, to deceive believers, to deceive the world. Many will come claiming to be the Messiah. In other words, many will come claiming to be Jesus and give you eternal life that are not Jesus. And man, I mean, if you know anything about anything, there has been countless counterfeits over the years that claim to be the way to God. Lots of the world, lots of other religions, I mean, lots of cults, lots of things have done this and continue to do this to get people away from God's word to their own word, to their own concepts, to their own ways to heaven, and they neglect, they lead astray, they deceive men and women from the truth that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. John 14, 6, Jesus said it himself. No one comes to the Father except through me. The road is wide and the gate is narrow. Jesus Christ is the only way. There is no other name under heaven which man must be saved. Jesus is warning that there will come deceivers, people that are trying to lead you astray, and it will only increase. And we need to be aware and careful not to be deceived. There's powerful forces of deception in the world today and will be as time goes on. And the devil is behind it all. He is the father of lies, John 8, 44. That's what he does, and that's what he does really well. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. scripture also says that the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. This is why it's so deceptive sometimes because there's half-truths. Things look good. Some of what you're saying is true. Some of what you're saying does sound good to me. But we need to be cautious and be aware not to be deceived. And the way in which we do that The way in which we obey God's word, because God's actually giving us commands today from his word, right? Jesus himself is saying, watch out, be careful, don't be deceived. I'm warning you, I'm letting you know ahead of time that there's danger. There's danger ahead of you, and I'm warning you not to be deceived. You know the way in which we in this room, the rest of humanity, you know the way in which we're not deceived? It isn't to just isolate ourselves into a bubble, Live on a hill in a monastery. Put all our kids in, you know, the tightest little group and never let them see and hear about sin and the devil. Nothing. It's not isolation. The way in which we become able to not be deceived and led astray is that each of us need to know the word of God for ourselves. Not just what I say, not just what your friend says, not just what the statement of faith, not just like a podcast you heard and like these broad concepts, but all of us need to be students of God's word. Like we have to have God's infallible 
word written on the tablets of our heart. We have to. There will be a time where you're isolated and separated. And if you don't know the word of God yourself, you will be prone and susceptible. And your ears may be tickled, the book of James would say. You might hear something that sounds good and feels good and those people are doing it. And all of a sudden, you've been led astray and you've been deceived away from Jesus. You know, there was a group of people in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, that uh, the apostle Paul and his buddy Silas were ministering to. These were Berean Jews. And they heard what Paul and Silas said to them, but they didn't just take his word for it. They actually went, it says in Acts chapter 17, and they read and they studied, studied the scripture themselves to test if Paul and Silas were actually t- speaking God's word. We call these guys the Bereans, and they're known for being students of the word of God. And we too need to be Bereans. See, we, sh- you guys shouldn't just take my word for it. Oh, well, you know, good church, statement of faith. Oh, yeah, it is, okay. I'm honored that you, you trust me to teach you the word of God. And not that I want you to, like, doubt me every day, but I do, I do want you to not just take my word for it because I said it and I'm up here at this pulpit. I want us to be able to know truth from error, that we know what the word of God says for ourselves. You have to know for yourself what I'm telling you, and you have to line it up to the word of God for yourself. I once heard um, the process of how the U.S. Treasury Department trained their their agents, their employees, for, for counterfeit banknotes. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this, but if you're in the, whatever it is, counterfeit office at the U.S. Treasury, maybe that's Secret Service, I don't know how it works. Um, they never ever see a counterfeit note. Never see bad ones, never examine bad ones. All they do day in and day out, their training is studying the real $20 bills, the real Benjamins. They look, they study, they know the ins and outs of what is genuine and what is authentic. They study the real one over and over and over. You know why? So that when a counterfeit comes, they know a mile away that's not real. We're real, excuse me, by the feel, by the texture, by the look, by the color of the ink. They know the truth so well they can spot a false one from a mile away. The same thing should be true to us about the word of God, especially when the times get darker and our enemy gets get craftier and more deceptive. I know we might not feel that this is like a thing that we need to worry about, but it really is. And the reason why I'm saying it is because Jesus is making a big point about it. I mean, he's making a huge deal about it, that we know the word of God and do not get led astray from false teachers. The second action is, in light of that, in light of the truth, in light of God being the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, is that we must share this truth. Literally, it says here in verse 10 that Christ's return actually hangs on the truth, that if Everyone in the world, every people group, has to hear the gospel before Jesus comes back. That's what it says here. Every nation must first hear God's word. That's why 
we as the church universal, big C, and reality Honolulu, we need to be about the gospel being preached in other places in the world where it has not been preached. And I don't know if that's a new concept to you, but there are whole people groups, millions, if not billions of people that don't have access to the gospel or they've never heard it before. I mean, there's literally people that have never heard any of this. And the fact of Jesus coming back, that action is actually determined by the church being the church in the world and sharing the good news to the whole world. Isn't that crazy? Like the quicker the good news goes to the unreached, the quicker Jesus comes back. Like we have part in that. Do you guys get that? I mean, that's, that's, like, that's that impetus to, to go and preach the good news to those that do not know it. Guys, with me? End of point two, point three. You here? You here? Nope. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to go then. I'm going to go. I'm almost done. Next we see in this text is that God is with us always. There may come plenty times when things in this world are really rough. Verses 14 through 20 of our text today is, is so gnarly. It's so heavy. It's, it, in verse 19, it literally says that the worst part of history that the world has ever seen will happen. I mean, if you think about the history of the world and all the atrocities that have happened, you'd kind of be like, what does that even mean? That is not a good thing. What Jesus is saying here, it's going to get so bad, it's going to be the worst time that history has ever seen since creation. And in context here, there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of suffering, and Christians are going to be imprisoned and on trial and interrogated for their faith. But what Jesus says here is that he promises that we he promises that the Holy Spirit will be with us and speak for us in the times of fiercest trial and persecution. That's what it says. He interjects in the midst of this. When you get put on trial, when you're before the authorities, when you're persecuted for your faith, do not worry or be anxious for I have given you the Holy Spirit and he will give you the words to speak at the proper time. And not only that, he says that God will use it for an opportunity for the truth to spread. Literally, what's intended for evil, God will turn for good. What Jesus does here in the midst of a really heavy section of text is he reminds the disciples of the promised third person of our triune God, the Holy Spirit, our wonderful helper. The thing, what's crazy is, is that these guys don't have the Holy Spirit yet. I mean, right? I mean, think about Mount of Olives, disciples. Jesus hasn't ascended. Pentecost hasn't happened. The Holy Spirit haven't fallen on the church. So they don't really know what that fully means yet. But if you're a believer, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. God lives in you, and you know the power of the Holy Spirit. Pretty much the only way we are able to do life. The only way we're able to, to live for the Lord continuously and be changed into the image of God is by the power of the Holy Spirit. These guys didn't have it left, yes, but they will. But we do. In 1 Corinthians 6, you know what it says? That literally, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. But do you guys see that imagery? Jesus just told them that the temple, the stone temple, would be destroyed. The temple housing God's presence. 
But then Jesus reminds them, I'm the better temple because I am God. And he goes on to say, it's better for you that I leave so that I give you the Holy Spirit. And Paul would say what that means is that now we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Literally, God is dwelling in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This truth reminds us of a truth that as believers, we have to build our lives upon that God will never leave us or never forsake us. He is Emmanuel. That is part of his character. It means God is with us. And that truth will keep the test of any test, any trial, over any amount of time. And so the reason why we can say that Jesus is is the way, the truth, and the life always is because that truth We'll, we'll, we'll keep the test of time because God is with us. We're able to stand firm on that truth because we have God in us now. So even, as verse 19 would say, when the world gets the worst that it's ever seen, we think it's bad now, there's actually worse coming. In the midst of that, we can stand on the promise that God is with us in that and he will never leave us or forsake us. Whether we feel like it or not, God is near to us. And lastly, Jesus is coming again to make all things right. That is the the broadest theme of Mark chapter 13. The king is coming back. And yes, that is to bring final judgment, but also it's to right every wrong. All the injustices in the world will be brought to justice. There will no longer be any evil. Jesus is coming back to end all evil and bring restoration and renewal to all of creation. And as as much of all of this text and all these things can be weird and scary and just out there, the fact that Jesus is coming back is absolutely glorious and wonderful. And it's something that believers, we should look forward to because we know that Jesus is coming back to rule and reign for all of eternity and every effect of sin and of the devil and everything that's wrong in the world will finally be made right. And Jesus says, Don't worry too much about when it is. I don't even know myself. Do you see that? Only the Father does. Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming back. So we shouldn't really either. And the church, like I said before, divides over this. They divide over when Jesus is coming back. Many in this room, you guys are like maybe super pre-tribulation, super post-trib when the rapture is going to be. And yes, there is important reasons why you would fight over the when. But take Jesus' words. It's actually not about the when, it's about the who. It's not about when Jesus is coming back. It's about that Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to set everything right again. I don't know about you, but man, the darker it gets, if I, the hope that I have is knowing that one day the king is coming back to fix it all. And he's going to do away with all the violence and all the disease. And he's going to wipe away all the tears. All the worst things in your life that have ever happened or anything on the news that's happening won't exist anymore. Like, do, do, you, do you see the hope of restoration and renewal that Jesus is bringing? And my prayer is, is that we 
would see the significance of the future as a way to live in the present. That we would be a people. My hope is that these truths that we see today would make us be comforted, courageous, and hopeful. In the midst of anything that may happen in your personal life, in the time to come, as nations rage against nations, as there's more natural disasters, as there's more evil in the world, that we would stand firm on the truth of who God is and what he's done, and that because of that, knowing he's coming back, knowing that he has the final word, we have the victory in Jesus Christ, that we would be comforted in the midst of things that we should not be comforted in, that we would take comfort in who our God is. We would be courageous, though, we wouldn't just sit and wait and, and just flee the world, but we would be in the world sharing the good news of Jesus Christ where it has not been shared because we want Jesus to come back. And we know we don't do it, but the power of the Holy Spirit in us, right? He's the one that's going to give us the words. And so we're courageous. And at the end of the day, in the midst of all that our world will go, full, go through excuse me, as believers, what this does is it gives us hope. We can be hopeful that there will be an end to all the pain and all the worry and all the heartbreak, and God will fix it all. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word this morning. And um, God, as complex or as detailed or as maybe confusing these concepts can be sometimes. We thank you, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That your love and your grace and your mercy don't fade away over time. Thank you, Lord, that we can lay our life upon your truths and upon your word. That you say not one letter will disappear. And so, God, we pray that we would be comforted by these truths, whatever we're stepping into, whatever happens in the world, whatever happens prior to you coming back. We pray that we would be a people that are comforted, courageous, and hopeful because of it. So, God, as we enter into a time of worship, we want to worship you now for who you are and what you've done. Thank you that you're God and you have everything under control. Even when it seems like the world is spinning out of control, you're bigger, you're better, and you have the final word. Thank you for these truths this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.